Welcome to the Composer Studio Podcast. On the Composer Studio, we listen to the music of living composers. We talk to them about their writing process, and we learn about the world of music that they live and work in. Today, our guest is composer Rain Worthington. With performances spanning the globe from Brazil to Iceland to America, and with premieres in Tokyo, the UK, and India. Rain's music is proof that music transcends culture. Worthington has received the American Prize Ernst Bacon Award, a Global Music Award, and grants from Meet the Composer, ASCAP, American Music Center, and the American Composers Forum, among others. She serves as Artistic Administrator and Composer Advocate for the New York Women Composers. Rain, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. I'm thrilled. I'm totally thrilled. <laughs> so thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. We have tried so many times to get you on and we've had to reschedule several times. So this is actually, I'm so glad we finally made this happen. Well, thank you. And um, I was saying to Tarek, um, we may be getting thunderstorms and lightning. And if that happens, <laughs> Um, we'll have well, to reschedule. Let's we'll figure not. it out. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. We're supposed to have really, really terrible winds tonight. So oh, no. we could okay. have the same, oh, really? same issue. Yeah. Oh, so boy, let's just hope, hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> okay. Okay. Raina, I was curious, you know, just reading a little bit about your bio and, and how you became a composer. You're a self-taught composer. Yes. And in a world where... Most of the time, composers are associated with studying from the beginning with a certain composer or being nurtured by someone into this world of composition. How was it for you coming up as a self-taught composer? And what is that like? How did you get started? Well, I've told this story many times, and I've been thinking about it lately because I want to tell some other aspects of it. Um, the short story is that um, I was staying at a place where they had a grand piano and I was there. Um, this was in my early 20s. When I was much, much younger, like three years old, I was living with my grandparents and they had a piano. And I would go out and plunk away a little bit, you know, as kids do. And that was kind of the end of my music um, for till my early 20s. In fifth grade, I took one semester of violin, I think, and I wasn't very good. Um, uh, so I was at this place, this uh, family house, and I was able to uh, spend some time there alone. And I just sat down at the piano and started kind of making up things like I did when I was three years old. So it kind of just put me back into that childlike, you know, kind of innocence and I and the only reason it worked is, for me is because the piano is so accessible. It's it's the accessible instrument, you know, that you can make a beautiful sound without any training, you know. So that got pulled. I just fell in love with it, um, like I had when I was three, and um, so that got me into it. And when I returned back to where I was living, which was in Boston. I went and looked for a piano because I wanted to continue 
And I went to an antique store and they had a beautiful piano with carving and everything. And um, I said, does it work? (laughs) Do the keys work? Do the pedals work? And they said, yeah, you know, sit down and you can play. And I said, "Mm, I don't play, but I'd like to buy this piano. I just, you know, so I got the piano and then I took it to New York with me. I want to add to this that um, it's unusual for a composer of concert music to be, quote, self-taught. And it's also unusual for a composer not to be trained on any instrument. And I would have had trouble going into music programs um, without any performance aspect uh, on any instrument because that's usually one of the uh, requirements to get into music schools. I'm pretty sure most music schools. So it's unusual for the world of concert music, and it's taken me longer to do, uh, to learn, because I've had to go through books and things like that, find the ranges of instruments, figure it out, you know, download pictures of uh, fretboards or or, um, fingerboards for the cello and stuff like that. But in the world of um, rock and pop, uh, so many people are Mm -hmm. self-taught because they just sit down, like I did, with an instrument. A lot of times it's guitar, and they just start playing, and that's their path into it. So it's very unusual in the classical world, I think, because especially writing for orchestra, because you need to kind of get a sense of what the instruments can do and what the orchestra is going to sound like. And I love writing for orchestra. But um, in terms of of other aspects of music that are, that are much more um, wider spread, um, like pop and rock, it's it's not unusual at all. Mm-hmm. You actually in in New York when you moved to New York, didn't you have some performance experience? You you started performing at in Soho and at the Kitchen, um, so you did have some experiences that you you know that caused you to kind of go down this path a little bit into performance. Can you oh tell yeah, us a little bit about that experience and how that you know, how, what part of the journey that was for you as a composer and um, how, it, how it led to the next thing? Well, um, I hadn't had any training, but I took my piano to New York. And um, when people saw it, they'd say, who plays? Oh, who's the, who's the musician? And I'd say, well, I just write, I just make up things. And um, people said, well, why don't, we'd love to hear it. It was a time that was really supportive. Um, there was a real openness. This was in the mid seventies, and minimalism. And um, um, I, I moved into Soho before it was Soho. I moved into a empty loft with one light bulb, a cold water sink. The heat went off at night, and and that's the loft I moved into. And there was one restaurant and one gallery, and that was it, and then, um, but but it was uh, filled with artists and composers and dancers and writers moving in to these loft spaces in Manhattan. 
So there was just this real vibrant community of people supporting each other in the arts. And because the music at that time was to um, minimalism had developed and was developing, minimalism um, kind of was open to a naivete and a simplicity that I could sit down and make up things on my own and then play them. And um, they were accepted as part of the minimalistic music scene. And um, so that's how I started uh, playing. And I didn't know how to write the pieces down. Um, So I would just play from, I'd make up pieces and, and put them together in a concert and play from memory often with my eyes closed in a dark concert, (laughs) a dark loft. And people, um, loft concerts were very common and people would come in and sit on the floor and a lot of times the lights would be all dimmed. And and so the first concert, uh, I was lucky to do the first concert at a fellow composer's loft. His name is Charlemagne Palestine. And um, he had a Bersendor for piano. And he said I could um, practice at his loft. Uh, he gave me keys to his loft, and he said, you can go there and practice and um, do a concert at my loft. And he had been doing a lot of con- his music concerts at his loft. So um, so that's how I was able to do it. And uh, the Bruce and Dorfer piano was beautiful and had all the sustain, which really suited my music. And, uh, you know, so that's how I started. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in those loft concerts. The loft concerts were fantastic. And Charlemagne was an incredible um, uh, performer, composer, um, doing very uh, repetitive kind of drumming um, motions on his piano in a way, but it would just build this wall of sound, you know, but, Mm. but this beautiful kind of overlay and overlay and overlay, you know, of, of the sounds of the sustained tones. And it was just incredible. It was trance like, and all the lights would be dark and um, he would be smoking clove cigarettes um, because they numb you and because of the strength of what he was doing mm-hmm. on the Bersendorfer. And um, every once in a while, like because of the the wave that he was creating on the strings, a string would pop off oh and, the whole, <laughs> and the whole piano would like shake, you know, I mean, just because the type of sound it was, it was just creating that force in the piano. Anyway, he's still performing and he's in Belgium. He's lived in uh, Belgium for years and years now. Well, maybe he, we'll he, have to have him on. It would be oh, interesting yeah. to talk he, with him. He's, he's pretty amazing. And um, just to go off on a tangent, I saw him recently. Um, he was performing at the Armory in New York City in one of the beautiful rooms that they have he did this whole environment with lights going around like a, a 
around the walls and everything. And he has teddy bears everywhere. And so <laughs> teddy bears were like floating in the air. And, uh, and goodness. Uh, anyway, it was, it was, it sounds hokey, but actually it was incredibly magical. It's so important, isn't it, to have creative friends, you know, the, to feed off of, you know, when you're, when you're a creative person and an artist. Um, yeah. It's so important to have that feedback and that be in that environment. Right, right. He was definitely my mentor in the sense that he, reaff- he affirmed that what I was doing was worthwhile mm-hmm. and gave me the space to do it and the piano and I saw you smile when I said Bösendorfer. Oh yeah, I know. I can only dream of having a Bösendorfer. <laughs> yeah, so beautiful. yeah, they're beautiful pianos. Yeah. Well, the first piece we're going to listen to of yours is called Night Stream for two violins. Uh-huh. Um, do you want to just give us a little bit of a of a some information about it so we can know what to listen for? Um, well, a lot of my music comes from kind of an evocative kind of re- reflection on feelings. I mean, um, you know, I translate feelings into music, basically. Nightstream is kind of, uh, you know, a lot of the pieces are reflective about life, and um, contrary to the title of being nature, it's not. It's about the flow of life. I just had this image of being in a taxi riding through New York streets at night, late, late, late at night with the rain coming down and streaming down the windows and um, just kind of thinking about the flow of life and the passing of time. This is Nightstream for two violins performed by Antonin Radil and Jakob Latal.
That was Night's Dream, composed by Rain Worthington, performed by Antonin Hradil and Jakob Latal. So, Rain, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about some of your influences. I know that Satie is a, a composer that you really admire. Can you tell us a little bit about Impressionism in music? Um, I know it seems like your music, in a way, it's a new kind of Impressionism. Can you, can you give us a little bit of insight into your passion for this kind of tone painting? I think because it allows me to just go into the emotion of the music and, and also being self-taught, it's kind of a, a, a channel into the emotion of the music without worrying about harmony or architecture or um, anything like that because I don't compose that way at all. My composing process, I think, is called through composing, um, where you just kind of go along and, and follow the music. And, and so it's also a process of discovery for me as I'm writing. I'm kind of going on the journey that the listener will then go through, I hope, when they hear it. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of times I don't, I don't know what the piece is about exactly emotionally until a, a lot of times it's later on that it comes to me, oh, this is about this kind of feeling. You know, mm-hmm. this is what I'm feeling when I'm composing. Well, well, you talked a little bit in the notes about, um, you know, this idea of light streaming across a window on a late rainy night. So it made mm-hmm. me wonder, what does light streaming sound like? And what kinds of sounds do you use to conjure impressions of things like that, of light streaming on a, across a window on a late rainy night in the listener's mind? It wasn't so much the visual, um, trying to capture the visual of that. It was the feeling of that. And to me, um, that image kind of, or, or being in that situation was evoking kind of a, a yearning and a longing, as well as reflecting on the passage of time and, um, and, and the state of my life at that moment or something, uh, a certain kind of aloneness and, and yearning and longing and um, just kind of wondering the, the light streaming is kind of more about the moving through life emotionally. Just You're mm-hmm. just continuing to move forward, not knowing where it's going, but you just have this kind of wash of experience happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was that kind of thing. I don't do like literal tone paintings of... of or program music, even with Shredding Glass, um, which is, was uh, written in the wake of the events of 9-11, it does have uh, kind of descending and ascending chromatic lines, but it's not meant to be program music about the fall of the uh, World Trade Center. Um, I'm more trying to... Um, evoke the emotion mm-hmm. that I'm feeling and and to translate that into music. I will say that I've been very lucky that um, a lot of reviewers and journalists have kind of confirmed that what I have been after in a piece of music 
has been translated to them to some extent. Well, it's interesting because we there's this perennial debate amongst composers and music theorists about whether or not you can actually paint with sound, whether you can conjure any kind of specific um, image. And I, you know, there's, I guess it's only possible if you're conjuring a, a sound that everyone knows, you know, maybe a siren or something like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, an image or an impression like uh, rain on a, on a window might be harder to do that. Um, but it makes a lot of sense when you, when you tell it, when you explain it as a, an emotional metaphor rather than as an, a literal image that you're working to um, kind of transcribe into music. Right, right. And, and you're exactly right. They're emotional metaphors mm-hmm. um, that I'm kind of, uh, if, if something comes to mind that is a visual, it's, it's an emotional metaphor. And a lot of times a visual um, won't come to mind. You, you seem to have a, a connection with art. What is it about the images in art that connect you to music? Well, I did uh, start out doing photography and, um, and drawing and painting and sculpture. Like I just kind of went to those things the same way I went to music. Um, I, don't, I don't know whether it's the actual connection to pieces of art as opposed to the process of art. Again, it's about like, go, you know, when you think about a painting or you think, or even more sculpture, people going to a block of clay um, and creating something out of it or going to a blank canvas and like, where do you start? You know, especially if you're not literally starting from a um, representational, um, you know, still life or something. You know, um, where do you start on the canvas? What do you apply first, you know, and where does that take you? It's a journey. And and when um, when you're molding a piece of clay or a piece of stone, it's the same thing. How are you finding your way into that medium? And um, so I think it's not literally pieces of art that are um, that I'm connecting to as much. It's just the process and the emotionality of art. Uh, we're going to go ahead and listen to a piece of yours for orchestra called Still Motion. In your mind, was this more about photography or was this more about uh, uh, something on a canvas, or neither, or either. Neither. <laughs> Again, it was about emotions, and um, uh, it was um, in response to kind of the end, of, the end of the year of going through family things and and holidays and all this kind of um, emotional pressure of things not being quite what they should be or pretending they were something else, you know, when they're really not, um, you know. And um, and at the time there were some kind of emotional tensions uh, with family things going on. And, um, and so it was kind of, uh, I had been through this period, this, this holiday, and I got back to New York, and it's like, 
I just wanted to like move forward, <laughs> you know, with life again, kind of get my footing again. Um, and so that's, that's what it was. Um, and I think it kind of conveys that mix of tension and, and, and energy, edgy energy to move forward. And um, so people get different things from my pieces. Um, they relate it in different ways. But um, somebody who went to the concert, to the premiere performance of that piece, said he felt like he was a pioneer, like on a on a plane moving forward and with wagons and stuff like that. And so the interesting thing is that it had a different image. You know, I didn't have a specific image for that one, but he did. But the feeling was the same. So mm -hmm. that's what got conveyed. So yeah. I just want to ask real quick about the title, Still Motion. So it's about moving forward from, uh -huh. you know, an emotional and a difficult emotional place. So where is the stillness in that? Um, it, it's because you're, you're centered. It's like the stillness is your centering mm -hmm. and you're moving forward from that centering kind of, you know, you're not literally physically moving forward. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just kind of recentering yourself mm -hmm. and moving forward. Is there anything in the music that, you know, that you want, want to point out to the listeners um, that they should be, you know, that you think is kind of a unique marker of this piece or, something interesting that um, they might not have noticed if, if you didn't point it out. No, I just, I just want listeners to, to go with the, I, I consider it all, most of my pieces mm -hmm. journeys. Mm -hmm. So it's just go with the journey. Well, let's take a listen to this now. This is Still Motion for Orchestra by composer Rain Worthington, performed by the Moravian Philharmonic Orchestra, Peter Vronsky, conductor.
That was Still Motion for Orchestra by Rain Worthington, performed by the Moravian Philharmonic Orchestra with Peter Vronsky conducting. Rain, I, you know, I was just thinking while, we, while I was listening to that piece um, and wondering about your tonal language, you know, as a composer who, you know, you, you compose from an emotional place, where do you think you derive your tonal language from? I know you've traveled some in the Middle East, so you have this experience of other modes that may not be so common in um, commonly used in, in the West. Does that, do you draw inspiration from a certain um, cultural milieu um, or do you, does it just kind of come to you? Do you absorb it from the environment? Um, I think it's, I, it's something I've absorbed um, or was attracted to for some reason very early on um, when I was very young one of my favorite songs was Caravan. I I was always kind of drawn to that sound, that kind of exotic sound. And then uh, when a friend was going to um, travel and uh, go over to Greece, I went with him and um, he went to study Oud in Greece. And um, I traveled over there with him and listened to a lot of, um, before we left, I listened to a lot of music, a lot of Greek music. And then when we got over there, um, it wasn't possible for him to study with the teacher he was he wanted to. So we ended up going to Egypt, and then we went to Turkey. And I lived in uh, Istanbul for nine months um, and was exposed to a lot of uh, kind of steeped in um, Turkish art music. And I really had an immediate affinity to it. Um, what's interesting about um, a lot of world music is that it's, first of all, it's not based on our, our harmonic system. And a lot of times the instruments are playing one line altogether. So the richness of the sound is the different timbres of the instruments playing the, the same tones. And a lot of times uh, the development is more modal because it's not based in harmony, uh, tonic and dominant and subdominant and all this. Um, so I think I've just been drawn to it for some reason. And it I don't think of it consciously, um, but it does seep into my music at different times. Um, mm -hmm. People will mention that it sounds a little Mideastern. So it's not it's not a conscious thing, um, but it's but it's something that just seems to be part of my musical DNA or something. Mm -hmm. It's <laughs> part of you, right? So it comes out exactly. Yeah. You're integrating that experience. It's interesting how you've integrated the experiences um, of your life into your music with sound. You know, like the environment has just found its way in. The next piece we're going to listen to, Shredding Glass uh, for Orchestra, is based on a another experience, 9-11. Um, were you in New York when that happened? Mm -hmm. I was um, working at a uh, – I had two jobs. One was teaching music and um, general music in public schools and uh, public elementary schools. And um, as an offshore work outreach teacher – um, 
And the other job I had uh, was working in a um, word processing center in a big financial institution. And the building was right across from the Southern Tower mm. of the World Trade Center. So the World Trade Center was right there, like across the street. Um, and when it came down, when the Southern Tower was hit, um, some of the Southern Tower went down through the building where I worked. But luckily, two things. I worked at night. Um, I, I did a shift from 4 to 2 in the morning. So um, I wasn't there when that happened. Uh, and luckily, um, almost everybody in the building was evacuated safely. The World Trade Center was definitely a part of my landscape, my daily landscape. It had a profound effect on me as it did, you know, for thousands and thousands of people. So, um, but, it, but there was an immediacy to it. And the other thing that was part of that is that um, I, they moved my work to Midtown Manhattan and I would go um, take a car service home at two in the morning to Brooklyn, where my um, boyfriend was, and my now my husband. Um, and uh, I would be traveling the same route that the trucks were traveling to take the debris out of the city. So it was incredible, like every night that I worked. Um, to to be on the road seeing these flatbed trucks with these huge pieces of twisted twisted metal steel metal you know I mean it was just incredible um, so it was it went on and on and on kind of like every night <laughs> I was reminded of it and um, anyway so. Goodness. That's powerful stuff. Yeah, it was very shocking. And just, and, and the piece, uh, just to add one more thing, I mean, the piece is about bearing witness, which we all were doing, you know, um, through that, through those days. Um, so it, it's about the process of dealing with that and bearing witness to the, to the destruction and, and um, the tragedy. Let's go ahead and listen to this piece now. It's called Shredding Glass for Orchestra, composed by our guest Rain Worthington, performed by the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra, Robert Ian Winston, conductor.
That was Shredding Glass by composer Rain Worthington. Rain, I have a few questions for you, but you know, one thing I, I did want to ask first is I, I noticed that while we were listening to this piece, you had kept your eyes closed for most of the piece. And I was wondering, do you, do you typically listen to music with your eyes closed? And what does it do for you to listen that way? Um, <laughs> I, I do uh, listen to music with my eyes closed um, because uh, it just takes me more into the sound without the distraction of, uh, you know, visuals. Um, I think it's really, uh, it's an important, actually, part of um, listening to music. And I, uh, I decided this time I wanted to do that because I wanted to go into the piece because uh, just to, to get back into it. And um, also the interesting thing, I, I mentioned this in my emails uh, earlier about talking about things I never talk about, um, hardly ever talk about, is that um, one of the uh, uh, aspects in my life uh, I with photography is that I worked in a, uh, a lab, a photo lab, and um, one of the jobs I had was developing film. And so you're in the dark. Um, unlike uh, when you're making prints where you have a safe light, when you're developing film, you're completely in the dark. So you were, uh, I think it was formative in many ways uh, as an influence um, because I was so attuned to listening. Um, because if you drop something in the dark room, you have to find it by hearing where it might have fallen or um, different things. You know, you're in this um, kind of deprivation state uh, in terms of visuals, and it really, really makes you super sensitive to sound. Mm. I didn't know it at the time, but I think it was a really wonderful um, thing for me to be doing. And um if I could get just philosophical for a moment about our society, I think it's a, a bad thing that um, we are so oversaturated with audio all the time as a as a background, like wherever we are, whether we're outside, whether we're in a restaurant, whether we're shopping, whether you know, just about anywhere, um, we have audio in the background and very little quiet, very little silence. And I think for anyone, my advice to young composers would be to not have this constant audio streamed in all the time. You know, you need to find quiet space to hear your own voices, to tune into what's around you that might go into your music rhythms or whatever. It can be anything you know, that comes into you. But if you have this background ambient sound going on all the time, you never get to that quiet and you can never hear rhythms in your mind or any kind of melody in your mind. That That's one reason I close my eyes is to tune into the music. Mm. Um, and I wanted to in this piece because it was, um, this was one of the hardest pieces to ever compose and it just nearly stopped me from doing music. Um, because I, it was I started it um, after nine eleven, 
and it kind of I had this uh, low kind of resonant sound that seemed to be everywhere in my head, you know, after nine eleven. Um, and even though the piece doesn't have a lot of that, it has some of it. This low kind of rumbling, An ominous. Kind of, yeah, the beginning. Yeah, it was. It was kind of pervasive in my mind, in my psyche, uh, after 9-11, and I couldn't go back to finish the piece. I just couldn't go back into the emotions of it, and the shock of it, and the tragedy of it, and the, the uh, scope of it. And um, I kept trying to get back there to, to work through it. Um, but the emotions were, you know, as with everybody, so complex, you know, so, so much to deal with that, um, you know, and so raw that it was hard to go back into that spa- emotional space to work on the piece. So it took me a long time. It took me until I moved upstate uh, New York to finish the piece. Uh, three years later, and I finally was able to finish the piece. So what do you do when you get stuck like that um, as a composer? What do you, do you have, do you go to other things? Do you go to another art form? Um, I'm sure as a person who composes from the, from your emotions, that's one thing that can be tricky sometimes. Yeah. Um, But I was always able to do it no matter what happened before. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't, um, it was just so complex to go back into that. Um, I, I didn't do a whole lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, wasn't able to go into other art forms. I wasn't able to write about it. I wasn't able to, to go into anything, really. It was a very frustrating period. And, um, yeah, so it was a so. very tough time. When you go back after, you know, let's say you get you get blocked emotionally, when you go back, do you find that sometimes your emotional state is different? And so you, your approach to the piece changes or um, somehow it doesn't make sense anymore or it's um, in some some people who write, you know, if you get interrupted when you're writing, um, let's say uh-huh. a novel or something and you um, stop for a while, go back to it you look at the material you did before and it's, it doesn't, you know, it's not you anymore or it's not your emotional state Mm -hmm. has changed. So it's hard to bring that continuity back to the piece. In in this case, did you have that? Did you have a problem with that? No, because it just kept taking me back into Mm -hmm. it. Um, So it, it was forceful enough that I just kept going back into it. And, um, so it's still, and it's still, when I listen to it, it takes me back into it. Um, it's, it when I really stop and listen to it, it's, very, it's a very emotional experience for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that composers do um, look back at their work and say, you know, um, I would have done that differently, you know. And I, uh, I feel that, the that it's better not to go back and change things because that is representative of that time and maybe you aren't exactly the same person but it's a valid expression of who you were mm. you know and i think that's important 
Well, let's go ahead and move on to the next piece of yours called In Passages. This is a piece for violin and orchestra, string orchestra to be specific. Um, some would call it a concerto, but you're not calling it a concerto, right? You, 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 your approach to writing for orchestra and soloist is a little bit different. And I would love for you to tell us and our listeners a little bit about how you perceive it. Well, I knew a violinist from Iceland, and she had done several of my uh, string works and um, solo violin pieces. And I wanted to write something for her that would be very beautiful. And, um, and so I started this piece with that in mind um, to give her a vehicle for soloing with a string orchestra. Um, but the thing about my music is that I don't write virtuosically in terms of showcasing that kind of skill as a player. So it's not a concerto that way. So it, the violinist is um, kind of like a figure that comes out of the orchestra, like a, a figure would emerge from like a fog and then recede back into it. And so you have this atmosphere. I, I call it fog, but it's atmosphere. So the the violinist emerges out of the atmosphere and then and then fades back into it and becomes part of it. It's not the traditional um, model where the soloist is, you know, is in front of the orchestra all the time. That's really you know? interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's kind of the emotional. Uh, um, feeling of the piece too, but anyway, so that's that's why it's not a concerto. <laughs> Where did the atmosphere come from that you composed? Did you draw from a specific experience, or let's, even the room where you composed? I did intentionally want something beautiful. You know, you just kind of start channeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Somehow, it just starts forming and and. Um, Creativity is such a mysterious process. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure in many mediums, uh, just how things start going through you and how you begin and where it leads you. And like I said, you know, where you're taking the journey. So mm -hmm. I don't know where it came from, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm glad it did. Not only do you have to turn off external sounds, uh, as much as possible, you know, you have to turn off the critical part of you that is going to stop that flow. And that's, that's really hard to turn off the judgment of yourself and, and, and in the process of doing what you're doing. But um, that kind of criticism, that's kind of self-judgment and, and, especially if you're comparing anything you do to something else that's already been done, you know, or, or other people, you know, and what they do call it compare and despair, you know, um, <laughs> it's just like, it just stops everything, mm -hmm. you know? So mm -hmm. you have to really, like you said, you just have to open yourself to it, to the experience and, 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 filter out a lot of things let you be in the moment with that you know mm -hmm. well let's go ahead and take a listen this is in passages for violin soloist and string orchestra performed by the moravian philharmonic orchestra peter vronsky conducting mojka ramashek on violin 
That was In Passages for Violin Solo and String Orchestra, composed by our guest today, Rain Worthington. Rain, that is an unbelievable piece of music and an unbelievably perfect performance as well. Um, you know, you, you're a wonderful composer. You write with such profundity and your music has so much depth. Um, your music is getting recorded. Uh, Novona Records has released your chamber and orchestra music. And I, I know that there's some music coming out as well on Novona Records uh, this year also. And I just, you know, I wanted to know what's next for you with regard to recording as well as what you're working on currently. The next recording, uh, we're actually going to do it May 28th. Um, and it's a piece uh, that was written in uh, September 2020, and it's called Dreaming Through Fog. <laughs> and um, as you can imagine, you can imagine what, it, <laughs> what it's about, um, you know, just being in this kind of, you know, suspension of life uh, during the pandemic. And uh, so it's... Um, a very strange piece. It's very slow moving and uh, with different aspects that come into it um, from the outside kind of uh, coming into the inside. Um, it's very strange because when I listened to that piece, uh, when I was writing it and I'm listening back to it, um, the beginning of it is uh, it's the strangest experience. Um, with my eyes closed, it feels like, or even with them open, it feels like I'm being drawn through this tunnel. You know, it's, mm. it's, it really gives me that visceral feeling. It's, it's very strange. So I was going to ask where, where will you be recording and how, how are, how are you going to uh, interact with the orchestra and the conductor? And um, Well, I'll be getting up at 2.30 in the morning, I think. Um, to tune in uh, at three o'clock. And um, so I'll be virtually streaming into the recording uh, studio, um, not the hall, but the, the actual recording part, uh, studio part of it, which is separated from the hall. And um, I've done a number of recordings through Parma Recordings for Novono Records. Um, this way, I was lucky to go to um, uh, the Czech Republic twice for uh, recording sessions in person, and that was like a great experience. It was just, it was really wonderful. Parma is um, has been an amazing uh, company to work with. Uh, I started working with them in two thousand nine, and the first recording I did was streaming into. Um, to Moscow. So I was three hours in a studio in Moscow. And, um, you know, that was the first time I got to see anybody from the re uh, Parma recordings. You know, I got to meet them virtually because uh, I hadn't been up to their headquarters. And um, so that was my first uh, experience with it. And um, They've just um, they've been great to work with. They're just so respectful. They they always elicit uh, feedback from the artist about the recording session 
in real time how how it's going, whether things need to dynamics need to be changed or tempo uh, adjustments or anything. And then during the editing process, um, they do the same thing. You you get a lot of chance for feedback. And the way they do recordings um, for people who might not know in uh, for orchestra recordings in this day and age, um, recordings are done in small segments because you can't do a run through with a whole orchestra. And if there's a mistake, do a whole nother run through. It's just prohibitively expensive to do that. Mm. So um, it's, it's in sections. I've been lucky that most of my sections have been in the order of the music. So, so that's how the recording session is done. And I will be in the dark here like at night. And uh, last time, then I saw the sunrise <laughs> um, and the day get, uh, you know, lighter. And um, it'll be with the Janicek uh, Philharmonic again. Great. So they they did within Deep Currents and um, Ostrava, okay. uh, Czech Republic. You've, you know, your recordings have been well received. Yeah, I've yeah. been lucky. <laughs> You've been very lucky. And it's just great. Um, we're very excited to hear the next album when it comes out. Do you have any idea when it might be coming out? Um, so this recording in May is going to be for a solo album. I've only had one album of all my works, which is Dream Vapors. The rest of the time, it's um, I've been recording and releasing them on compilations, and Parma has been very generous in allowing me to use the recordings that came out on compilations uh, to compile them. Uh, into a solo release. So uh, after many years of recording and releasing on compilations, I had enough material to do a solo CD, which was Dream Vapors. And likewise, this I'm going to do another um, second solo album, which will have a few chamber works and and um, some more, and m- mostly orchestra works. So this piece, Dreaming Through Fog, will be included in the new album. The one I think you're going to play within Deep Currents is going to be on that album. In Passages is going to be on that album too. And Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so a lot of the recent releases will be uh, consolidated on uh, another solo CD. Well, Rain, it, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. You, you've said so many wonderful things. Your approach to composition is so unique and such a breath of fresh air to hear, and your music is absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> I've just, I, I have been very lucky. And if I could just uh, say one thing about my process, hopefully I'm not running over too much, because I've talked a lot about the emotionality of it. Um, I think. For me, um, what what the process is, is tapping into, uh, I feel like there's a kind of a subliminal uh, language that's pre-language, you know, um, pre, pre-verbal language um, that exists within all of us. It's kind of this, this channel of, of, emotions and I feel that uh, at my 
composing taps into those emotions, um, into that pre-verbal language, and um, is in a, it's very mysterious how it works, but somehow there's there's there are things in that kind of subliminal channel that resonate with people in um, very common emotional kind of responses, and it's not um, it's not simplistic. It's not, and it's and everybody knows that like. You know, you always hear that minor music is sad music and major is more happy and upbeat. And the Greeks had like modes that they attributed different qualities to heroic and, and sad. And, um, but it's even more mysterious than that because you have minor music and what quality of sadness is it, you know? It's it's it just goes so much deeper and it's so much more subtle, and and you know it is the sadness is it grief is it loneliness is it um, desolation is it existential you know um, so I feel somehow I've been able because uh, music is so important deeply important and so embedded somehow within me that I've been able to dip into that subliminal channel and and touch some of that preverbal kind of qualities of sound to create the music I create and and evoke the responses I get. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rain. <laughs> it has been it has been a real pleasure and we uh, hope that everyone has enjoyed the music as much as we have today. Um, this is Within Deep Currents for String Orchestra, the Janacek Philharmonic Orchestra, Ostrava, Czech Republic, performing, and the orchestra is conducted by Stanislav Vavrinek.
You have been listening to the music of composer Rain Worthington on Composer Studio. Rain's scores are published by Parma Music Publishing. Recordings of her music are available for purchase through Navona Records. If you want to learn more about the composer and her music, visit her website at www.rainworthington.com. We want to hear from you. If you have discovered a living composer you love, or if you yourself are a composer, share your music with us. Feel free to drop us a line on Facebook or visit our website and click the contact button. A lot of heart, soul, and cash goes into the making of a Composer Studio podcast episode. From music licenses to equipment costs and hosting servers, we could not make this show without the support of our patrons. Don't forget to visit our website and click the Become a Patron button if you haven't already. Thank you for supporting the show and the work of Living Composers. We would love to end the show tonight with a quote from a wonderful, impressionistic composer. I have never written a note I didn't mean. Eric Satie